0: So God is insanely accurate in his descriptions of what is going to happen. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, The Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Isaiah 13 and 14. That's where we are tonight. It's a couple of interesting chapters. Most of what we're going to be going over tonight is prophecy against Babylon. Towards the end of chapter 14, it starts to go into other nations. And then there's, you know, I think until chapter 23, about uh, is really a declaration of judgment against other nations. Not a message that's given to them, but a message about them given to the Israelite people. God, in a way, is showing off a bit his authority and sovereignty and saying he knows what's going to happen. Uh, As we dig into particular Babylon, these two chapters, 13 and 14, uh, remember that law of double reference or this idea that a prophecy can represent something that's going to happen in the near future and then also an ultimate fulfillment in the distant future. That's going to very, be very clear in these two chapters. Uh, there is specific things that happened within a couple hundred years of Isaiah's prophecy uh, to the nation of Babylon that are deadly accurate. But there's also mention of some things that are very clearly representative of the tribulation period or the day of the Lord or Jacob's trouble, whatever you want to call it, um, really written that connects to the book of Revelation and parts of Daniel. And so we'll try to open those things up and explain and expound on them as we get through them. Uh, but Babylon, it, the kingdom, is what this these prophecies are against. Uh, But just to remind you as we're dealing with the future part of that, Babylon and Jerusalem are the two most mentioned cities in Scripture. Jerusalem is first. It's the most mentioned city in Scripture, which makes sense. It's the city of David. It's the city where the Messiah is supposed to rule from. New Jerusalem gets set up after the millennial kingdom where Jesus reigns on earth. In the end, uh, so Jerusalem, the city of peace, the king of peace, the place where Mel- Melchizedek was from, all of that uh, makes sense. But then Babylon is really representative of the city of man. It's the Tower of Babel is the place. Is Babylon is where the Tower of Babel was built. And it's been this I, sort of place that's representative of man's uh, desire to lift its, its own power over God right? And interestingly, the Jews themselves are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Abraham was the man who was called to be the leader of the great patriarch of this great nation, and Abraham himself was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, the other word you'll hear for Babylonian is Chaldean. You won't hear it in this part of Isaiah, but throughout scripture, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians are interchangeable. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was originally a Chaldean, and he was brought to the land of Israel to show the promised land that God would give Abraham's descendants. So even that very nature uh, within Scripture is the gospel message, this sinful man trying to exert his power over God. God calls Abraham out of that group of people that's representative of that, and brings him to the city of peace where everything will ultimately play out in Scripture. So Babylon, again, is mentioned here. Now, this is about uh, in the mid to late 700s BC, so about a couple hundred years before Babylon is conquered by Persia, as we dig into this prophecy. In fact, it's even before Babylon conquers Assyria. So before Babylon, the kingdom, is even the greatest kingdom in the world, this prophecy is presented. Let's go. Chapter, or chapter 13, verse 1. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So the burden really meaning this disturbing message that Isaiah is going to have. He says, lift up a banner. On the high mountain, raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. So, what God is saying in the first couple of chapters is there's this great burden, this great Uh, difficult message that needs to be delivered. Isaiah is the one doing it, and this message is that God is raising up an army to take out Babylon. Babylon's not even the main player in the world stage right now, but Isaiah is seeing a couple hundred years in the future where Babylon will be, and God will take them out. He will raise up an army to take them out. And there's this, these mighty ones, these sanctified ones, really meaning, meaning they are set apart and chosen to be the instruments of God's judgment against the nation of Babylon. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdom of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts muster, musters the army for battle. And so this army that God is going to raise against Babylon seems to be this loud, noisy, massive people. Well, from history, we already know that it was the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered the Babylonians. And the Medo-Persian Empire's choice for warfare was really to just overwhelm you with massive amounts of troops and numbers. And they would come at you with an exceeding horde. Medo-Persia is not even... Babylon's not the number one army in the world right now. Medo Persia is a long distance away from being anything considered. Yet God is describing their type of warfare hundreds of years in advance because God is that sovereign. They come from a country far from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Whale. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. So you can tell that that phrase, whenever you see it, the day of the Lord, now it's talking about end times events. It's talking about the great tribulation period. So we've moved from the destruction of Babylon in ancient times to now the future destruction uh, when Jesus returns. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs of sorrow, pangs and sorrow, will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it Now that goes uh, as a pretty nice description when you look at the parallel of Revelation 19 when Jesus returns and it says that he treads the wine press and destroys his enemies because the wine press is really pointing out that Jesus is going to be like knee-high in blood on his return because of his vengeance and wrath. and the description here in Isaiah sounds a lot like the description in Revelation. For the stars of heaven of uh, stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause light to shine. This idea of the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened, it's going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. There's this judgment in verse ten here, where God brings on spirit an actual physical, but spiritual darkness. There is an actual physical darkness, the sun being blotted out and darkness being brought on the land, but it's thick. And this is actually reminiscent of other judgments that God has brought on throughout his wrath. So first, in the book of Exodus, when uh, God is bringing plagues against Pharaoh because he won't release the Israelite people, the ninth plague God brought a darkness to the land. And it was a physical darkness. The sun was blotted out like an eclipse, just completely dark in the land of Egypt as God's about to bring on his wrath. And what follows the ninth plague, the tenth plague, which is God killing the firstborn of everyone in Egypt who doesn't have lamb's blood painted on their door frames. In the book of Matthew, you actually see on the cross, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, in verses uh, in verse 45 and 46, it says, uh, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. There was three hours of darkness during the crucifixion of Jesus, and at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment where Jesus takes on the wrath of the world on the cross. He takes on God's wrath so that our sin can be justified because God's wrath is poured out on our sin. Because God is just, there must be punishment for sin. Jesus takes that punishment. As God is pouring out his wrath on the sin of all mankind onto Jesus, the earth is darkened. And so you see again, God's wrath poured out and this connection to darkness. And the last one would be in the book of Revelation in uh, chapter 6. When the sixth seal is opened in uh, chapter 6 of Revelation, it says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, and the moon as blood. And the sun is darkened again as God is pouring out his final wrath, In the the tribulation period, and the sun is darkened again. So, you see this consistent uh, thing throughout the scriptures of when God is really pouring out heavy wrath, he brings on this intense darkness. And so, this is clearly connected to the verse in Revelation and the judgment that God will bring uh, at the end in the day of the Lord. It says, I will punish the world for its evil. Here's another hint. Um, God is talking about punishing Babylon. And then after he points out that he's talking specifically about the day of the Lord, and he's moved from this near prophecy to this ultimate fulfillment at the end, the scope of the judgment goes from Babylon to the world. And so now you know that he's talking about end times. And the wicked for their iniquity, I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Now, what he's saying that is that by saying I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, as there will be such a loss of life that life, like survival, is rare because of the wrath that God is pouring out on the world on the Day of Judgment. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So there will be some sort of crazy seismic event as well. Um, There are lots of possibilities of what that could mean. You know, it could be super volcanoes, earthquakes. It could actually have something to do with the pole shifting that's going on um, because violent climactic things happen when the poles shift? Uh, We don't know, but some sort of cataclysmic loss of life and shaking of the earth is going to happen around this same time period and time frame during the great tribulation period. It shall be as the hunted gazelle and as sheep that no man takes up, every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, and their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Now this is moving back to the near fulfillment when the kingdom of Babylon that conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C., gets defeated in 539 B.C. And verse 17 really points that out by saying this, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. So before Babylon was even the number one you know, baddie in the land, uh, before the Medes and the Persians were really a threat to be considered at all, God is talking about the destruction of Babylon at the hand of the Medes, which is exactly who conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C. A little over 200 years later after this prophecy was written. So God is insanely accurate in his descriptions of what is going to happen. We're going to find out how even more accurate he is as we move through uh, the next chapter regarding the conquering of Babylon by the Medes, but he calls out the Medes by name, just like Daniel did before the Medo-Persian empire conquered Babylon. Also, their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children, and Babylon the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride. Chaldeans, Babylonians will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But the wild beasts of the desert will lie there and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near. To come, and her days will not be prolonged. So, actually, when when Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persians and conquered, the city of Babylon has never been rebuilt. There actually there is a rebuilding effort by the Iraqi government currently, but there has it hasn't really gone to fruition. So, there is sort of an argument among eschatological cir- circles, meaning end times studies whether or not the Babylon of Revelation is a spiritual representation of this attitude that Babylon represents in the Bible, or if it will actually physically be in that location. And the answer is, I don't know. But thus far, this prophecy seems to be accurate because the city of Babylon has never really been replaced. Chapter 14. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Interesting that when Babylon was conquered, about years, a little over 200 years after this prophecy was written down, when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, one of their you know, early acts was to allow the people of Israel to go back to the land and start rebuilding. That's what we read about when we read Ezra and Nehemiah. So, accurate, again, a couple of hundred years in advance. They hadn't even been kicked out of the land yet. Yet, Isaiah is telling them they will be booted out and then able to be brought back in by the Medes, which is exactly what happened. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. The people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for their servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. It shall come to pass, and the day of the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and hard bondage, in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted, and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you. And the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodman has come up against us. Hell from beneath you is excited about you. To meet you at your coming, it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They shall speak and say to you, "Have you also become weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and the worms over you." So, really speaking about the king of Babylon in general, uh, who the king at the time when Babylon was conquered was Belshazzar, and you read about that in Daniel five, when Belshazzar is in his palace drinking with his buddies, and drinking wine from the cups that they stole from the Jewish temple. And a hand writes on the wall, and he says, I don't know what that means. And he calls in Daniel, and he offers Daniel to be third highest ruler in the kingdom if he can tell him what it means. And Daniel says, I'll tell you what it means, but I'm not taking your offer because you're getting conquered. And that night they were overthrown by the Medo-Persians. So, That's the guy we're talking about. That pomp, that arrogance that Belshazzar had, uh, wow, was he really brought down. And that's what is really being talked about there. Now we move into a larger scope of events because the one behind the Babylon in the end times, whoever that leader is, will really be under the influence of the devil himself. And we get into that a little bit here in verse 12. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? Well, interestingly, uh, just as you know, if you're reading a different translation than the King James or the New King James, uh, you probably don't see Lucifer there. You see morning star or son of the dawn or something like that. Uh, the reason for that is. Morning star is probably a better translation because that comes from the original Hebrew. The New King James took the Latin word and put it into the translation here. Lucifer is not a proper name. It's describing a shining one um, or a morning star. So it's a better translation. Uh, Lucifer became the proper name we gave the devil because of the Latin translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It's not actually the proper name from the scripture. Um, but you know who they're talking about. <laughs> it's become sort of commonplace to say it that way because of the Latin translation. So, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how are you cut down to the ground, you who weak into the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the clouds, the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. We see the fulfillment of that in Revelation when Jesus returns and chains chains the devil in, in the pits of hell for a thousand years. Those you will see. Uh, will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook the kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of his prisoners? All of the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust with a sword, who go down to the pit the stones of the pit, like a corpse trodden underfoot. Now, this is really going back to the king of Babylon, Belshazzar, and his pomp and circumstance and arrogance and how he's actually going to be treated and, and his death with very little dignity, even though he is a king um, because of God's judgment. So it flips back and forth, and it can get confusing if you need, if you need to follow along. Um, it says, you will be joined with them in burial... Because you have destroyed your land and slain your people, the brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. Now, Belshazzar himself, it, basically, what's going on is he's going to die without dignity and he's not going to be remembered. That's the point here. He's not going to have the dignity of kings. He's not going to be someone who's remembered. Uh, interestingly, <laughs> how the way that history had played out with that is that Belshazzar is mentioned in the book of Daniel in chapter 5 as the one who was king when the Medes and Persians took over. But that's not what history understood for a very long time. In fact, lots of historians and uh, more liberal scholars of the Bible tried to discredit the book of Daniel because of the use of Belshazzar as the ruling king when the Medes and the Persians took over. Because the king at the time was Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was the king of of Babylon when the Medes and the Persians took over. Belshazzar was never mentioned. But what we found... Not all that long ago was something called the Nabonidus Cylinder. And there's this little mention of a guy named Belshazzar who happened to be the son of Nabonidus. And when Nabonidus was away at war, he made Belshazzar co-regent with him, equal to him as king in Babylon while Nabonidus was away, which is why Belshazzar offered Daniel to be the third highest in the kingdom and not the second. Because Belshazzar was co regent with his dad. And he w- was completely forgotten throughout most of human history until we found that little inscription on the Nabonidus cylinder that proved the Bible accurate. And he received no, dig- no dignity for centuries uh, because God is right, as usual. Verse 22. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts has now, this is the area where we move away from dealing with Babylon into a couple of other kingdoms as we move into this description of God and how he's going to deal with the nations of the world. So Assyria is still the number one baddie (laughs) uh, on the market, right? They're still trying to, they had recently taken out the northern kingdom of Israel, and they are marching against the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Isaiah is actually prophesying now about the current largest empire in the world, the strongest army in the world, uh, in the next couple of verses, and he's dealing with Assyria. Verse 24 The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. Then his yoke shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So, Isaiah briefly describes the destruction of Assyria. Now, the destruction of Assyria is is really more um, described in, say, the book of Nahum, but uh, this little description is interesting. It says, I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot, then his yoke shall be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulders. So Assyria was the instrument God used to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. But after the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, they started to march south against Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. And they got stopped in the mountain ranges outside of Jerusalem as they were marching towards the city, just like stated here. God protects them, and they were able to push the Assyrians back. And then later, God uses the Babylonians to conquer the Assyrians and wipe them from the face of the earth. So uh, just interesting how God he gets it right. He knows history before it happens because he's seen it already. Verse 28. This is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died. So a tough... Uh, Another tough message going out to the Philistines or about the Philistines. Do not rejoice, all of you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine, and it will slay your remnant. Wail, O gate, cry, O city, all all you of Philistia are dissolved. For smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in this appointed times. When they, uh, What will they answer, the messengers of the nation, that the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it? So basically, the uh, proclamation against the Philistines is King Ahaz was, uh, in the kingdom of Judah, was an instrument that God used to push back the Philistines. And he's basically saying, just because King Ahaz died doesn't mean that God has forgotten that he's going to destroy the Philistines. And he does. Um, And that is also in another minor prophet book uh, before Nahum. So uh, we'll get there eventually. And you'll get to hear about all of that, and it's a lot of fun. I just did it with youth group, so it's fresh on my mind. Through So the, these two chapters, they're really connected to Revelation, uh, but they're also connected to real history that happened about 200 years after it happened. Nebuchadnezzar was maybe the most proud king in Babylon's history. Daniel, if you remember the book of Daniel, uh, served under Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Judah and destroyed the temple and kidnapped the people into the land. And Nebuchadnezzar created a saw a vision of a statue, and then he created a false version of that statue that he had from his dream to make the people worship him. Instead of saying that God is in control and is going to bring nations after Babylon, he said, no, my kingdom will live forever. I'm going to erect the gold statue, because that the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream represented the kingdom of Babylon. So he made the whole statue gold, basically saying, my kingdom will last forever. And then God deals with Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow to the statue. He's confused by the fourth person in the fire. They get saved. He brings in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as uh, consultants in his kingdom. He gets humbled and goes crazy into the wilderness for a while. And God brings Nebuchadnezzar back from the wilderness and from the brink of insanity, humbled and he worships God in the end of his reign. And so God humbles the most proud king in Babylon's history, but then his grandson, who is equally as arrogant, gets humbled by the Medes and the Persians, which is exactly what's described in chapter 13 and 14, 200 years before the fact. So the point, really, of these two chapters is, one, God is in control, and he's right, and God is just. So, when God gives warning, you should pay attention. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But also, that the return, while the remnant will be small when Jesus returns, there will be more dead than alive. Those who have served him will get to serve in an amazing kingdom in peace because the violence and the sin of the earth, the what's left of Babylon or the spirit of Babylon will be gone because we'll be under the reign of the king of kings rather than trying to exalt ourselves as kings. So let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for your prophecy and your plan. God, I pray that we can submit to it and understand that you are good. And with your goodness and your righteousness and sovereignty, it also means destroying what is evil. Unfortunately, for many in the human race, that means us. But God, you are righteous and you seek to offer mercy. You covered the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat because you covered the law with mercy for those who would accept the blood of the Lamb. God, you offered your son on the cross as mercy for those who would believe. And you tell us in the books that Peter wrote his epistles that you don't delay or tarry what you are doing is being patient so that as many as possible would come to saving faith because it's not your will that any should perish, even though you know they will. So help us reach as many as possible to be saved from your wrath so that we can delight in your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.